Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? This is Chris. And this is Joe. From Curioso Podcast. It's the week of Halloween. So get in the spirit. With History Goes Bump. and the supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 229th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On this episode, we're bringing you another one of our haunted cemeteries. This is Haunted Cemeteries number five, and we have three of them on tap for you. And they're three of the most well-known cemeteries in the world, and they are very famously haunted. So we think you're really going to enjoy this one. And speaking of haunted cemeteries, we're in October of 2017. Don't forget that we have an event coming up on Sunday, October 29th. All day, go to your favorite local cemetery and take your spectacular crew bingo cemetery card out with you and see how many of those symbols that are on the card you can find. We're playing Blackout Bingo. And we're also going to be live tweeting it. So if you are out there with your phone and you want to post some of the pictures of the symbols that you're finding or how far along you are on your card, make sure you add the hashtag Cemetery Bingo to your tweets and we'll be able to follow what you guys are doing over there. That's going to be a great time. And it will take place all day. So whether you work or have family time, whatever time you can go, you're free to participate. And whoever manages to fill in the most amount of squares on their bingo card will win a prize. And for the tiebreaker, just in case we have more than one person, we are looking for the most unusual picture that you can get. So be sure you're taking snapshots of those very unique or very creepy or just the unusual grave markers that you find. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Jill. Hello, Jill. Casey and Samantha of True Crime Storytime Podcast. Hello, Casey and Samantha. Stacy with an IE. Hey, Stacy with an IE. Sasha and her son, Finn, who's another one of our 10-year-old listeners out there. Hello, Sasha and Finn. Ellie with an IE. Hey, Ellie with an IE. Brian with a Y. Hey, Brian with a Y. Trey with an E-I-G-H. I hope I said that right. Hello, Trey with an E-I-G-H. Lynn. Hey, Lynn. Tammy with a Y. Hi, Tammy with a Y. Charlie with an IE. 
Hey, Charlie with an IE. Maria. Hello, Maria. Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Christina with a CH. Hello, Christina with a CH. Sarah with an H. And Sarah with an H. Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Katie with an IE. Hello, Katie with an IE. Ken. Hi, Ken. Kathy. Hey, Kathy. Jen. Hello, Jen. Marsha with an SH. Hello, Marsha with an SH. Seth. Hey, Seth. TC. Hello, TC. Keith. Hello, Keith. And another Taylor. And hello, Taylor number two. And now, this moment, Naughty. A German physician named Dr. F. Watzold published a short essay in 1899 in which he claimed that young girls who played the piano had an increased chance of developing mental disorders. According to Dr. Watzold, his research had uncovered some alarming links between piano playing and neurotic disorders. One disorder was chlorosis or green sickness, which is today known as hypochromic anemia and causes a greenish hue to the skin. The doctor claimed that girls who studied the piano before the age of 12 were six times more likely to contract chlorosis or neurosis than girls who did not play the piano. He wrote, It is necessary to abandon the deadly habit of compelling young girls to hammer on the keyboard before they are 15 or 16. Even at this age, the exercise should be permitted only to those who are really talented and possessed of a robust temperament. Apparently, the piano was not the only dangerous musical instrument. He claimed studying the violin appears to produce even more disastrous results. Either Dr. Wetzold was surrounded by young musicians whose playing hurt his ears to the point he needed an excuse to make them stop, or something about his research was decidedly very odd. And now, This Month in History. In the month of October, on the 26th, in 1825, New York Governor DeWitt Clinton made the inaugural voyage on the Erie Canal. Ground was broken on the canal in 1817. It took eight years to complete at a cost of $7 million and stretched for 363 miles. It was the second longest canal in the world at that time. The canal linked Lake Erie to the Hudson River, and Governor Clinton predicted that it would create, quote, the greatest inland trade ever witnessed, end quote. Many called the Erie Canal Clinton's Folly or Clinton's Big Ditch. It took the governor nine days to complete his trip along the Erie Canal, and at the end he poured a barrel filled with water from Lake Erie into the Atlantic and called it a wedding of the waters. His prediction about the canal was right. Shipping costs dropped by 90%, settlers flooded west, and the canal paid for itself in nine years. The three cemeteries we are featuring in this episode are some of the most well-known cemeteries in the world. They also happen to be famously haunted. Each has beautiful and ornate monuments and have become favorite spots for taphophiles. Hollywood Forever has become the final resting place for a plethora of deceased celebrities. Some of them haunt the cemetery even today. Greyfriars Kirkyard has a long history that includes Bloody Mackenzie, who apparently still haunts the cemetery. Highgate Cemetery has gorgeous Gothic architecture and a story about a vampire that calls the graveyard its home. 
Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of these three unique haunted cemeteries. So the first one we're going to visit here is Hollywood Forever. And this sits on 62 acres and has over 80,000 grave sites. So this is a large cemetery. It's one of the oldest in Los Angeles. And it's actually the only one that is in the city of Hollywood, which I did not know. It was founded back in 1899 by the Hollywood Cemetery Association, which was a group of men. And originally it was called Hollywood Cemetery. At that time, there were 100 acres in total, but RKO Studios bought 40 of the acres and built a studio that eventually became Paramount Studios. So right next to Hollywood Forever is the Paramount Studios lot. Wow, that's cool. (laughs) A little interesting to have those as neighbors to each other. The graveyard is veritable who's who of dead celebrities. These celebrity burials include Mickey Rooney, Douglas Fairbanks, Jane Mansfield's cenotaph is there. And for those of you who don't remember what a cenotaph is, this is basically a memorial or a monument that's in place for a person, but their body is not actually there. Cecil B. DeMille, Rudolph Valentino, Peter Laurie, Dee Dee and Johnny Ramone, Judy Garland, Bugsy Siegel, and two of the little rascals, Alfalfa and Darla Hood. And a fun fact, our moderator, Rhonda, she's been out to Hollywood forever, and she went over and was looking at Johnny Ramone's headstone, which is very unique. It's one of the most unique ones out there, and he had it specially made. And apparently he has a guard duck at his grave because it tried to attack Rhonda. So I don't know why there's this guard duck out there, but uh, he's protecting Johnny Ramone's grave. So be careful if you ever go out there. There are more than just celebrities here, though. Important historic figures in the building of Los Angeles have their final resting place here as well. A convicted felon named Jules Roth purchased a 51% stake in the cemetery, and that was in 1939. He proceeded to use the cemetery funds for personal expenses and luxuries for the next six decades. So basically it became his personal bank. (laughs) Exactly. One of those luxuries that he had was a yacht he claimed would be of use for spreading ashes, but it actually became a party boat. The cemetery fell into disrepair, and it was so bad that when Cass Elliot was being cremated in 1974, several of the crematory bricks collapsed around her body. They even had to shut down the crematorium for quite some time, but I believe in 2000, I can't remember if it was six, they reopened it and had it all refurbished. But can you imagine you're cremating a body and then it just kind of starts collapsing in? That would be not a good thing for sure. Relatives of the interred began moving the bodies of their loved ones, and in 1986, a class action lawsuit was filed against Roth. Roth also was racist and would not allow minorities to be buried at the graveyard, and this included Hattie McDaniel of Gone with the Wind fame. She would wanted to be buried there, and he said, nope, she's a black woman, not going to happen. And this was in the 50s. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. But in 1998, Roth died bankrupt, so he did get his own. And after his burial, it was discovered that the cemetery endowment fund was missing about $9 million. So he definitely was living it up. And that's why it was in such disrepair, because he didn't bother to repair a thing. He just was spending it on all of his little toys. And what drives me crazy is he had a 51% stake. So the people who had the 49% stake, were they just not paying attention? Did they have anybody watching the account? For six decades, this man just did whatever he wanted to with this money. And didn't take care of what the money was for, which, thank God, they finally stepped in and started repairing and and bringing it back to its beautiful glory. In 1998, Tyler and Brent Cassidy purchased the property for $375,000, and they invested millions in renovations and renamed the site Hollywood Forever. 
One of the items they added was a granite monument for Hattie McDaniel. So they made good on the fact that she had wanted to be buried there. So she has a cenotaph there in her honor. The cemetery has become a cultural center and every year features a Dio de los Muertos festival. And it also, they have movies there in the cemetery every so often. And I remember, I think it was two seasons ago, The Walking Dead had their finale. Right after the finale, they had a big, their Talking Dead show was from Hollywood Forever. And that was really cool. Very, very cool. But controversy still continued for Hollywood Forever. And I don't know if it's because it was a Hollywood cemetery that it was having all this money issues going on. But one of the brothers, Brent Cassidy and his father, apparently the Cassidy family were really big into the burial business. So what they were doing is they started this Ponzi scheme. And instead of saying, hey, if you invest in this, you invest so much, then these people invest and then you get this money and then they get this money and kind of building it like a pyramid. It was this Ponzi scheme in which you pre-bought your burial stuff. And a lot of people do that to make it easier for their families. The problem is these people weren't using your pre-burial expenses and things, that money for you. They were using it to fund other things. $450 million was stolen out of this funeral company that they had started. Even though it's fabulous that Hollywood Forever got renovated, where do you think a lot of those renovation funds came from? From the people who were pre-buying their stuff. Mm -hmm. So this Ponzi scheme, the money that they were bringing in for this is how they were able to do a lot of the renovations at Hollywood Forever. And of course, they padded their own pockets as well. Both Brent Cassidy and his father went to prison in 2010 for this. Tyler Cassidy apparently was not involved in that, or I don't know, he didn't get charged, but his brother Brent sold his interest in Hollywood Forever to a family-owned trust. So I think they set it up in a different way now so that there can't be any weird shenanigans going on. We wanted to mention a burial that is special to us, and that is Myla Nurmi's grave. She became the first ever television horror host in the 1950s. We all know her as the fabulous Vampira. Vampira was born when Nurmi attended choreographer Lester Horton's annual Bal Karib Masquerade in a costume inspired by Morticia Adams in 1953. She made her skin pale white and wore a tight black dress. Television producer Hunt Stromberg Jr. saw her and knew she would be perfect to host horror movies on the Los Angeles television station KABC-TV. Nurmi's husband Dean Reisner came up with the name Vampira. Nurmi's characterization of Vampira was inspired by the dragon lady from the comic strip Terry and the Pirates and the evil queen from Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. She hosted the Vampira show from 1954 to 1955. She also appeared in Ed Wood's cult film Plan 9 from Outer Space, among other films. She died of natural causes in 2008 and was buried in the Griffith Lawn section at Hollywood Forever. Yeah, so we just had to mention that because I absolutely love horror hosts. It's one of the things that I remember from my childhood, and she really was the precursor to Elvira. And I know there's some bad blood when it comes to Vampira versus Elvira. I know that uh, Milo was not very happy with the way things went down with Elvira, but I'm a huge fan of Elvira because that's where I basically cut my teeth on horror movies, so... But I thought it, I thought we'd share that because that was very cool. Her ghost does not haunt it, but uh, I just thought it'd be cool to mention that. Hollywood Forever is supposedly incredibly haunted. Many ghosts apparently walk the grounds. One of these spirits belongs to William Randolph Hearst. 
Now, he is not buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, but his mistress, Marion Davies, is located there, and apparently he likes to visit her in the afterlife. So people say they've seen his apparition hanging out near her tombstone. Rudolph Valentino's grave is the site of an apparition of a woman in a black dress, and many claim this woman is Dietra Flame. Dietra had been seriously ill in the hospital when she was a little girl. Valentino was friends with her mother, so he showed up at the hospital bearing a single red rose. He whispered to her, you're not going to die at all. You're going to outlive me by many years, but one thing's for sure. If I die before you do, will you please come and stay by me because I don't want to be alone either. You come and talk to me. Valentino was right. Dietra got better, and he died a few years later from complications from gastric ulcer surgery. As an adult, she brought red roses to his crypt every year on his death date. She died in 1984, and ever since then, people claim to see a ghost woman in black kneeling in front of Valentino's tomb. Some visitors have seen a rose just appear in the vase on the wall. Disembodied footsteps have been heard, and there's a feeling as though being watched by someone unseen. Clifton Webb was an actor who appeared in the films Cheaper by the Dozen and Laura, and he played Mr. Belvedere in Sitting Pretty, Mr. Belvedere Goes to College, and Mr. Belvedere Rings the Bell. He died of a heart attack at the age of 76. He is buried in Crypt 2350 in the Abbey of the Psalms Mausoleum. Visitors claim to see his apparition in a suit at the crypt and to hear whispering voices and see strange flickering lights there as well. There are occasional reports of a cold, swirling draft that leaves behind the scent of cologne. Virginia Rappé was a silent film actress who also was an alcoholic. She died after attending a party hosted by Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Her bladder ruptured while at the party and she was rushed to the hospital and died a few days later. The rumors swirling around were that Arbuckle had raped her at the party and that because of his size and the violence of the encounter, her bladder was ruptured. He was even tried for rape and murder. He was acquitted three times, but his life was completely ruined by this scandal. What really happened to Rappé is a mystery. Some say she had a botched abortion. Others claim that she tickled Arbuckle and he accidentally kneed her in the abdomen when he jumped. She was buried at Hollywood forever, and it is believed that her spirit is at unrest there because of her tarnished reputation and unsolved death. Witnesses feel cold spots and hear the sounds of a woman sobbing. And then next up, we have Greyfriars Kirkyard. Edinburgh, Scotland is considered one of the most haunted cities in all of Europe, particularly with Edinburgh Castle sitting above the city as a type of haunted sentinel. The castle is said to be the most haunted location in Edinburgh, but Greyfriars Kirkyard could give the castle a good fight for that title. Burials have taken place here since the 16th century, and the cemetery sits between an old melancholy hospital and a menacing-looking prison. The tombstones and statuary are ornate and beautiful. The term kirk means church, and so a kirkyard is a churchyard. A churchyard is a cemetery that is on church property. The church that sits here is named for the Franciscan Friary that originally was located here and managed by the Grey Friars, an order of Franciscan monks. The Franciscan order originally landed in Canterbury from Italy in the 13th century and spread across what we call the United Kingdom today. The order was later split into two different groups known as the conventuals, friars that were in the cities, and the observants who wanted to keep the old, more isolated ways. The Franciscans in Great Britain became known as the Grey Friars. Roman Catholicism was pushed out of Scotland in the 16th century. A group of people signed covenants in Scotland binding themselves to maintain Presbyterian doctrines and denouncing the Pope and the Catholic Church. 
They became known as Covenanters, and they proved to be a big issue for King Charles I. The National Covenant was signed at Greyfriars Kirk in 1638, and it was an oath to maintain the Reformed religion and reject all superstition of the Catholic Church. When King Charles tried to push new reforms on the Covenanters, they revolted and defeated the king in the Bishop's War. Wars continued, and the Covenanters became the de facto government of Scotland. Later, Oliver Cromwell, fighting for the English Parliament, would defeat the Covenanters, and by 1652, they were decimated. In 1679, another rebellion was formed, but it was knocked down once again, and 1,200 Covenanters were taken prisoner and put into the Covenanters' prison at Greyfriars Kirkyard, which is why we're telling you about them. Conditions were awful, and many were executed. By the end of their imprisonment, only 400 Covenanters were alive, and they were sold into slavery, most of them dying when the ship transporting them wrecked. So you went from having 1,200 of them to 400, and with their harsh treatment, this was a prison that was right there on the grounds where the cemetery is now. So you can imagine this is going to cause some problems when it comes to hauntings. Sir George Mackenzie, who was a Scottish lawyer, became the Lord Advocate implementing the reforms of King Charles II in Scotland, and he was the one who not only imprisoned the Covenanters, but also had most of them executed, earning him the title of Bloody Mackenzie. Prior to this, Mackenzie had been involved in witch trials. Mackenzie died in 1691 and is buried, ironically, in Greyfriars Kirkyard in a large mausoleum. Reports of Mackenzie's ghost haunting Greyfriars Kirkyard began in the 20th century after a homeless man decided to seek shelter in Mackenzie's mausoleum during a rainstorm. He had noticed that he could get through an opening in the back of the structure. After he entered, he began to rummage through the coffins like a grave robber, and he fell through the flooring that had rotted away into a pit full of bones. Well, I think that serves him right for breaking into a mausoleum. Absolutely. This pit was where plague victims were buried. As is the case in so many cities in earlier centuries, it was impossible to do individual burials during the times of plague, and so mass burials were conducted. The homeless man ran screaming from the building, and now the poltergeist of Mackenzie has been taking out his rage about this desecration on visitors. The ghost injures people to the point of cuts, bruises, and even broken bones. Most of these attacks happen in the Covenanter's prison area, so apparently Bloody Mackenzie has returned to his roots. There is a mausoleum inside the prison called the Black Mausoleum, and this is where much of the activity occurs. And if the hundreds of personal reports do not convince people the place is haunted, perhaps the true story of how the exorcist Colin Grant died shortly after trying to cleanse the entire Kirkyard, and particularly the Black Mausoleum, might convince them. So if you are visiting this cemetery, might be a little careful when you're wandering around where the governor's prison used to be and this black mausoleum. We've got some angry ghosts hanging around there. Yes, it does not sound like a place that I would like to wander. Now, there is a sweet ghost there, and this is connected to an animal. Greyfriars Bobby is another famous resident at the Kirkyard. The story is told of a night watchman named John Gray who took on a sky terrier as his partner and named him Bobby. Gray eventually contracted tuberculosis and succumbed to the disease in 1858. He was buried at Greyfriars Kirkyard, and Bobby took up vigil at his master's grave. And, you know, we've heard this story more than once. Yes. He refused to leave, even in bad weather. And so the townspeople took care of the dog, bringing him food and water. And Bobby would sometimes leave to have a meal at a nearby shop. Bobby kept vigil for 14 years. Can you imagine? Wow. That's that, just incredible. That is loyalty. That's why we love dogs. And then he was buried in the Kirkyard, and a monument was erected in his honor. 
The accuracy of this story has been questioned for years, and some have surmised that Bobby was just a stray dog that had taken up residence in the graveyard, but we'd like to believe that he was really there hanging out for his master. Well, and so many stories that you hear kind of would give credence to that. And there were many stray animals that were in the graveyard, so that's why they think that might have been the case. But we think whatever the case is, there's a beautiful monument there for the dog. And we have heard stories that there is a ghostly apparition of the dog that still hangs out there in the cemetery. Cool. Well, that's the story I'm staying with. Next up, we have Highgate Cemetery. Highgate Cemetery opened in 1839 outside of London. Churches at that time were having a hard time dealing with all the burials, so a plan was implemented to build more cemeteries known as the Magnificent Seven. Highgate was one of them, and it was designed by Stephen Geary. The cemetery was dedicated to St. James by Right Reverend Charles Bloomfield, and burials were sold to people for a limited period or for perpetuity. The graveyard is very Victorian in style with Gothic tombs, and it became a very fashionable place to be buried, and people enjoyed visiting. Wildlife and wildflowers have made the cemetery home. Notable areas are Egyptian Avenue and Circle of Lebanon, and notable burials are Jane Arden, Karl Marx, Elizabeth Siddell, Ellen Wood, Felix Topolsky, and William Michael Rossetti. By World War II, the cemetery was abandoned for the most part. So you have all this beautiful wildlife and wildflowers and trees, and it's just a gorgeous, basically what we would call one of our garden cemeteries here in America. But by World War II, everything was just starting to fall apart and crumble away. And people weren't visiting it as much, and they weren't upkeeping it. And so for all of its beautiful monuments and ostentatious memorials, because one of the things that happened here is that you had a lot of rich people who wanted to be buried in this gorgeous cemetery. Well, what do rich people like to do with their memorials, Denise? They like to fancy them up. And if you see that guy over there has that kind of monument, what do you want to do? You want to have a bigger and better monument. So what you have here is a lot of these families were trying to outdo each other and make bigger and better memorials. But if you're not upkeeping those, it starts to fall apart and, and fall into disrepair. And that was the case after World War II. And probably what a lot of the problem was here is the family was dying off. And so there was nobody to take care of them anymore. So for all of its beautiful monuments and ostentatious memorials, Highgate has a dark side. Rumors of satanic ceremonies and cult meetings have been rampant, and tales of ghostly experiences have been received by the local newspapers even. So it's not just people telling each other these stories. The newspapers are reporting a lot of these stories, and just a few of them. You've got a man who wrote that his car broke down outside of the cemetery, So he gets out of his car to see what's going on. He lifts the hood and he's next to the cemetery. So he glances over towards the cemetery gates and he sees a terrifying thing. There's some kind of an apparition with glowing red eyes that's just glaring at him. And he was terrified. I don't know exactly what he did, but I know what I would do if my car was broken down. I'd just be running because obviously you can't just jump in the car and take off again. There are people who've referred to this particular apparition as the devil ghoul. So it has been seen by more than just this gentleman, and it's so terrifying that they're actually calling it some kind of a devil. A spirit on a bicycle was seen by a woman. She was frightened as she watched him make his way up a steep incline. Another ghost was said to be seen waiting in a pond that is there in the cemetery. And our infamous Lady in White appears here as well. There are reports about a wailing banshee, and we wonder if Our Lady in White and this wailing banshee might be one and the same. That's a possibility. 
Another man was knocked to the ground by a creature that swooped down from a wall of the cemetery while he walked down Swain's Lane. The creature then disappeared as the headlights from a passing car shone into the cemetery. And as we were reading a lot of the experiences that people were having, time and time again, we would hear about this creature that just seemed to swoop down out of trees or walls. Not exactly sure what that is, but it might pertain to something we're going to talk about in just a minute. Several similar experiences are shared in Westwood and Simpson's The Lore of the Land. My fiancé and I spotted a most unusual form about a year ago. It just seemed to glide across the park. I am so glad someone else spotted it. And, to my knowledge, the ghost always takes the form of a pale figure and has been seen appearing for several years. And, suddenly from the corner of my eye, I saw something move, which seemed to be walking towards us from the gates and sent us running up the Swain's Lane as fast as we could. So this creature that seems to be swooping down, I'm not sure if it's some kind of a cryptid creature or could this possibly be the most bizarre story that we have coming out of Highgate. Those of you who are familiar with the cemetery more than likely have heard about the Highgate vampire. This story dates back to the 1960s. So what's very unusual about it is usually if we're going to hear a vampire story, these are going back into the folklore of centuries ago. Right, Denise? Exactly. Like you, that's when you're looking back in the old, old history and in lore of the land. Exactly. You're not going to be just walking through a cemetery here in the 60s and then all of a sudden you've got these vampire stories starting up. What happened is a group of paranormal enthusiasts decided that they wanted to start investigating the cemetery in the late 1960s. And one of their members is named David Ferrant. And you probably have heard him interviewed on a few paranormal podcasts. And uh, I know he's been on Coast to Coast talking about the experiences that he's had here at Highgate. He decided to stay overnight on December 21st, 1969. When Ferent is interviewed, he claims that he saw a very tall and pale figure that appeared to be inhuman with hypnotic eyes. Generally, he describes it as something to be about seven to eight feet tall and that these hypnotic eyes were actually seemed to be having some kind of power or pull on him. Now, he's not the only one who makes this claim about the Highgate vampire. A little bit later, there's a guy who's named Sean Manchester, and he claimed to see a similar supernatural entity there at Highgate. He also said that he found the carcasses of foxes that were drained of blood right there in the cemetery as well. Now, of course, we have to believe that he actually found these because I don't know that he ever brought any of these bodies forward or had them tested to see if they really were completely drained of their blood or if that's just him surmising that. So Manchester came up with this idea that a vampire had been brought to England in a coffin in the 18th century and that he was interred at Highgate. All of these satanic rituals that have been taking place here and these cults that were getting together, he says, must have done something to wake up the vampire. And that's why all of a sudden we have this Highgate vampire showing up in the 1960s that he got woken up or I don't know, whatever, some kind of ritual made him want to rise from his grave. Although our understanding of vampires is that they need to feed and that they don't just go dormant. So I don't know why he needed to have some kind of ritual to wake him up. He would have had to have been coming out of that coffin on a regular basis to feed. Exactly. So you've got David Ferret and you've got Sean Manchester. Both of these guys are telling the story about the Highgate vampire. And as happens when you have two different people who want to lay claim to something, they became rivals. And so they're kind of against each other, even to this day. 
Somehow there was a TV station that got them together and did a public interview of the two of them. And I don't know if their story wasn't really that big until this TV interview, but it caused a frenzy. And people decided that they were going to be vampire hunters and they ran over to Highgate. So they were going through and they were hunting down this vampire and they were going to take him out. Well, the police had to intervene and kick these people out of the cemetery because you can imagine the damage that they were causing. And again, we're hunting for something that more than likely is not there. Both men continued to return to the cemetery with their supporters to see if they could find the vampire. And as far as I know, they're still doing it to this day. David Farron is still out there looking for that vampire. I'm thinking, okay, we're uh, almost 60 years later and we haven't found the vampire. Probably not there, but it sure makes for a chilling story. And also makes me wonder, what is it that's swooping down on people? Is it just some kind of a large bird and they just don't, you know, is it an owl or something that's freaking them out? Or is there really something there that is scaring these people swooping down at them? Is it an English mothman? Who knows? I mean, maybe he's in Chicago. He's over in West Virginia. Maybe he could be over there. I know Nick Redfern has written books about flying creatures. So there's all different kinds out there. So who knows? Do several spirits wander around the cool mist of these three cemeteries? Are the ghosts of celebrities hanging out in Hollywood forever? Is Bloody Mackenzie at Greyfriars Kirkyard in the afterlife? Does Highgate have a vampire hiding in the darkness? Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, I know I have all three of those on my list as a taphophile. I absolutely want to see each and every one of those. And uh, I've wanted to see Hollywood forever for ages and ages. So looking forward to checking those out. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did hear from Cheryl via email. Hello, Denise and Diane. I am fairly new to the Spooktacular crew and have enjoyed my short time in the group. I have heard of the Pythian Castle for years and gotten to visit it twice. On each of my visits, I had something happen. The first visit was for a ghost tour during the Halloween season. I had my pant leg tugged on in the room that used to be the boys' dorm and got a photo full of orbs in the theater. My second visit was during a ghost hunt put on by the Kling brothers of Ghost Lab. I was in a group with one of their cameramen and we ended up in the tower together. While in the tower, we heard light footsteps coming up the stairs. When we turned to the stairs, we both saw what looked like a shimmer on the surface of the stairs. It dissipated and then appeared again further up the stairs toward us. It was awesome. Ooh, that's pretty creepy. Very creepy. And then we got a comment over on the blog. My daughters and I stayed at the Emily Morgan last month, September of 2017. And Denise, we actually got to see the Emily Morgan in person. That was very cool when we were in San Antonio. Yeah, it was, it was nice to finally see something we had talked about and heard about up close and personal. Our room was on the eighth floor. During the night, our door handle started rattling. It happened three times, several minutes apart. I thought maybe someone in the room next to ours got locked out. The next day, we ran into them as they were leaving their room and we were leaving ours. I asked one of them if they'd gotten locked out or were rattling, jiggling the door handle. And the woman said, no, we were asleep. I asked her if they had ordered room service. She said, no, that they had not. Then she said, don't worry, it's not just you. Last night, our jacuzzi jets turned on by themselves. (laughs) The next thing was the elevator. My daughter and I got on the elevator at the lobby level. We pushed the buttons for floors 7, 8, 9, and 14. The elevator stopped at 7. The door opened and closed. It then went up to the 8th floor and stopped. When the doors opened, I said, there better not be any ghosts on this floor, joking around because we were staying on the 8th floor. The doors closed. Instead of getting on to the 9th floor, the lights for both 9 and 14 turned off, and the elevator went down to the 7th floor. 
We got out and stood there laughing at the fact that this had just happened and waited a few more minutes for another elevator to take us back up to eight. We got off the elevator and went straight to our room. So the elevator stories are true. So it sounds like, Denise, they were tempting the spirits and they um, they got proof. Yeah, so maybe they should have listened. Good thing they didn't get stuck in the elevator. Next thing, even though the hotel has been renovated several times in the last 40 years or so, the top floor still smells like a nursing home hospital. And that's something that we had heard when we'd done our research, Denise. Finally, as we were leaving, again, riding in the elevator, a couple mentioned that their TV turned off by itself six times. So there you go. It's haunted. The employees will tell you their stories. It's very interesting to say the least. And if you're into staying at a haunted hotel whose ghosts are not physically threatening, the Emily Morgan is the place for you. Not to mention it's a really nice hotel in a great location. We have to agree. And then Katrina from The Spectacular Crew. I've been meaning to post this for weeks and kept forgetting. So this week I'm closing on my new house. But back in the beginning of the house buying process, we looked at a lot of houses, as you do. One of the places we looked at was, conveniently, across the street from one of our dearest friends. So we went to look at it with our realtor, of course. It was a typical old main farmhouse, around 150 years old. My wife is disabled, so I went down to the basement with the realtor to look around. The basement was so short that at 5 foot 3, I could barely stand upright in it. It also had a dirt floor with this huge ditch down the center of the room. I followed the ditch looking for water damage because I was worried it might be some sort of drainage channel for flooding. I went back to the back of the basement and found the cement wall. Only at second glance I realized there was a room behind the wall. A room with no door, just a crude hole at window height. I looked through the window with my cell phone flashlight. Inside this doorless room was a single metal bowl. A small one, like the kind I imagine in Oliver Twist's hands when he asked for more food. I have no idea why someone had a doorless room and what they were feeding in it. But yeah, we bought a different place and that house is still on the market last I knew. Oh my God. I can't even imagine. First of all, that cellar or basement sounds creepy as I'll get out because if it's still got a dirt floor, no thank you. Exactly. Because just even the, the critters that might be down there, but that room in the back with a little bowl in it that had no door, I would be like, absolutely not. So we support you in choosing a different home there. Yeah, there's a story there, and I don't want to know it. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Ugh. Lilia sent us a message. She had suggested, Denise, we have people who will suggest things now that we're up to uh, 229 episodes that we've already done before. So she had suggested that we do Legends of Mexico. And I said, well, we're going to be able to deliver on your suggestion immediately. Talk about service. And so I told her we'd already done that. She wanted to share a little bit about some of the experiences that she's had in regards to these legends. My parents are from San Luis Potosi in Zacatecas. Each of their towns has ghosts and legends. There's a story of a bride that appears to truckers and drivers on a road from Zacatecas to Villa de Cos. My father's brothers and his uncle said they have seen her. There are mines in Zacatecas that people say you can still hear the miners working. They have their own woman in white haunting the hills where the mines are located. There's also a legend that is popular in Mexico and the American Southwest about a witch that turns into an owl. My mother has firsthand experience with El Tecalotes. My mother claims the Tecalote mimicked her sister-in-law's crying and then started saying my uncle's name. If you're interested in learning more, I can ask them. So I said, well, I would love to know more. So she asked. My uncle Martin was a very jealous man. One day after coming home and accusing his wife of cheating on her, he started to beat her. My aunt called out for help from my grandfather who lived next door. The family rushed over to her aid. As they approached, they saw a large creature perched on the tree between the house. 
At first, the bird-like creature started to laugh, then made noises like it was trying to vomit. Between making those noises, it would say my uncle's name. After a few minutes later, it flew to another tree and started to imitate my aunt's cries, and then it would laugh, as if mocking her. The creature would go from tree to tree, mocking my aunt and saying my uncle's name. This went on for another half hour until the creature flew off into the near hills. According to my mother, my uncle's always had some kind of dark energy or spirits that chased him. Well, probably because he's a jerk. (laughs) My grandfather even took him to a healer to have him cleansed. He would sometimes find a pile of black earth. According to my mother, black earth was said to be collected from a grave on his doorstep, which is said to be a sign that someone was trying to use black magic to curse you. My family believes the creature was a tecalote, a witch that had cursed my uncle. That's amazing. I've heard the legend of that creature, but I've never heard a personal experience like that. So very creepy. Also, we do want to let you know that in regards to the 2018 trip to Key West, Florida, that's going to be in July of 2018, the hotel block is open up for booking. I've posted it both on History Goes Bump and the Spectacular Crew on the group pages, but also if you want more information or need the contact for the hotel, you can email us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. But the room block is open for booking. We've already had a couple people reserve their room for the Key West History goes bump key west trip 2018 and that is in july it's going to start on july 13th through the 16th and we will have a pre-trip activity that you can also book on thursday the 12th and so be looking for that i'm going to have all the information out soon but the hotel is available to book in key west we also have some reviews from apple podcasts first one's from hippie chick forever great podcast give it a listen you won't be sorry five stars i love this podcast it's one of my favorites the hosts do a wonderful job researching the spooky topics they discuss i've enjoyed every episode thank you ladies and please keep the stories coming caps n 25 history with a spin five stars i've been slow to post because of being new to podcasts i found hgb originally on iHeartRadio, which would not let me listen to all of the shows Having become addicted after only a couple, though, I broke down and downloaded iTunes so I could binge. I'm only halfway through, but I'm already harassing my husband with details from the shows I listened to the night before. Yes, I said the night before. Your show keeps me company as I work third shift at a hospital. I'm the only person on an old patient floor that has been turned into offices. The section of the hospital I'm in is close to 100 years old, and sadly, I've yet to find a ghost. I'm sure they're there. I love historic ghost stories. You do a great job mixing history and stories with laughter. Thanks for the enjoyment. Well, you are very welcome. Liz Evans, Castle, Cemeteries, and Ghosts. Oh, my. Five stars. I really enjoy listening to this podcast. There are a lot of historical hauntings that I've never heard of and ones I knew previously but learned something new. I would absolutely recommend this podcast to my friends who are as ghostly as I am. I love you, ladies, and the work you put into this is astounding. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, you are welcome, Liz. And then Aldisdill, I think is how you say that. Great show, five stars. Thanks, ladies, for a great podcast. You combine two of my favorite things, spooky stories and history. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you for that. We want to thank all of you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Amy Smith, Jessica, Tanika Axberg, and thank you to Roger Stevens for your one-time donation. Sweet dreams.
Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.